The spirit of performance is what defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. I'm hoping the Big Ten has to modify their system for us. <laughs> it's probably like getting grade 10 sandpaper rubbed on your face every day. I mean, we say it all the time, whether, you know, there's two types of turds, you're a sinker or you're a floater, but you're still a turd, right? I mean, um, we're, we're, we are about players and players playing the plays and not necessarily the plays. Welcome to the Varsity Club Podcast. My name is Derek Peterson. This week, I am very excited. I do not have him on enough. I am honored really to be joined by uh you could call him the foremost husker historian here in this nebraska media market uh you could call him a literally a living legend when it comes to storytelling um just nebraska info in general mike babcock hello thank you for coming on the podcast how are you i'm doing fine Derek. thanks for the kind introduction i think basically i'm old and uh i like to say that if you get old enough history there's nobody around to refute you so um ages of benefit for me there certainly so has there ever been a time where you've just made up something and tried (laughs) to see if if people would go along with it no i have never done that but but i'll tell you one of the one of the interesting things i've found in, in dealing with historical matters even things that have been written at a certain time about the history of say Nebraska athletics um, are inaccurate, and, and and I'll give you an example. Uh, this is this is my favorite example because it's a very respectable uh, short history of Nebraska football. It's called Fifty Years of Football. It was written in 1940 by Frederick Ware, who was the sports editor of the Omaha World Herald. Definitely a legend, Frederick Ware, and uh, in the uh, in the history that he wrote, he indicated that the coach at Iowa, the University of Iowa, T.U. Lyman, he said, um, had helped prepare the Nebraska team to play Iowa in 1891. It's the first time those schools played. And that was in his history, and it was carried down through um, official records and so forth. Uh, and I got to looking at that one day, and I thought, you know, that's really interesting, but logistically, how could that happen? Uh, so I went back, and I, and I picked up a, a history of Iowa football, and I'm reading it, and it turns out that T.U. Lyman played football and then coached at Iowa College, which was not the University of Iowa, which was, in fact, in those early years, Iowa's big uh, rival. And uh, Iowa College, I believe it was in Grinnell, uh, had beaten Iowa uh, the two previous years. And so it made sense that T.U. Lyman came to Lincoln and helped prepare the Nebraska team to play Iowa. But there was history that was from a reliable source that was carried down from 1940 all the way into the 70s, I believe the uh, Nebraska media guys, maybe even beyond that, kind of indicated that Lyman had been the Iowa coach. 
uh, and had done this sporting gesture um, that uh, Frederick Ware had referred to. So um, even things, and, and, you know, I think over the course of time, uh, I've probably written things that have been inaccurate as well, um, because you have to be very careful in, uh, in documenting uh, uh, those kinds of things. But um, nice off on a tangent. I know that's not what we're going to discuss today. Um, no, it's interesting because you'll get into a, you'll get into an interview with somebody, like say you're writing a feature story about somebody, you'll get into an interview, an enterprise piece or something, and they'll recall a conversation that they had. And then like, say you go back to that same person 10 years down the road and just to catch up or whatever, and you talk to them and, and they'll recall the same conversation and they'll give you different details. I've seen that a handful of times where something was written about somebody uh, and then years later, somebody else from a different publication will revisit that same story and they'll come back and they'll get a slightly different interpretation of, of a conversation that happened or, or an anecdote. And, and I always, I, 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 my head picks up on those because uh, I have OCD and I'm insane about things like being in their proper places. Um, and I just always kind of chuckle at those. It's how the mind works. I mean, I, here's another example of what you're saying. Um, I interviewed uh, a few years ago, I interviewed uh, Jerry Murtaugh about the 1970 National Championship team at Nebraska. He was one of the co-captains along with uh, Dan Snice. And I, I did this interview in, uh, gosh, I think it was, the, I think I did the interview in the year 2000. Um, so it was 30 years before that they played for National Championship. And uh, Murtaugh said, um, you know, that President Nixon, uh, Richard Nixon, who came to, to Lincoln to present a championship trophy to the Huskers, uh, said Nixon was so rude that he wouldn't even shake hands with me, Jerry Murtaugh. And uh, I'm looking back through uh, photographs from the, uh, the, from the day that Nixon was here and presented the trophy, and I came across a picture of Nixon uh, patting Murtaugh on the shoulder and shaking his hand. Okay, so Jerry didn't remember that that had happened. I mean, he, you know, his, his memory had had changed what had happened there. But in fact, the picture showed that it had happened. You know, that he said Nixon wouldn't even shake my hand. Hmm. He was rude to that point. But the fact is, he wasn't. Uh, they're both smiling and they're shaking hands. So your mind plays tricks on you, and you, and, you know, as time passes, I think you, you forget things or you remember them differently. Um, like uh, Proust wrote, uh, remembrance of things past is not necessarily a remembrance of things as they were. And uh, the older I get, the more I wonder about, you know, when I think back to times uh, long ago, you know, how accurately I remember them. Well, I have you on today because I want to do some – I want to do some remembering of the past and, and talking about things as, as they were, uh, would it be now 50 years ago, close to, uh, well, not close to 60 years ago, about 50 years ago. Um, it's black history month. It's February all month long, particularly in sports teams, organizations, um, people kind of all throughout the realm of sports ha have been highlighting black trailblazers. And pioneers and Nebraska, I noticed a couple of weeks ago on Twitter, they changed 
their their profile image. They didn't do it on Instagram, which I thought was weird, but whatever. They on on Twitter they changed their profile picture. Uh, instead of the red block N, it is a black block N, and the header image uh, is a tribute to the Magnificent Eight. Mike, you wrote a story on the Magnificent Eight uh, in June of, of twenty nine uh, of June in June of twenty seventeen. It was June 29th. I'm fumbling over my words here. You wrote a story about the Magnificent Eight. I want to talk to you about them. So yeah. let's, you write, you, you write kind of early on in the piece, they were racial pioneers. Um, though they weren't the first black athletes to play for the program. Later on, we hear from uh, one of the Magnificent Eight, Jim Brown, and he's talking about Peony Park in Omaha an amusement park that, that didn't allow black men and women to use the pool. And so Brown was already at Nebraska. You quote him saying, as far as I'm concerned, you could burn it being the park down. So let's, let's start here. This, this collection of, of eight men, eight football players, we're talking about them today. Nebraska showcased their story throughout black history month. So there's, there's obvious staying power with their story, but they weren't the first at Nebraska. So what gives this group of men, what gives their story significance? Well, I think, you know, I think just their, their, their presence and, and one of the most prominent members of that group was Preston Love, Preston Love Jr. And, uh, and I think that that's probably where the story began because I, I know Preston a little bit. I've, I've uh, uh, exchanged emails with him on a fairly regular basis and, uh, uh, I first met him in person, I think, uh, at uh, in Stromsburg, Nebraska, at a at the dedication of a section of the Stromsburg Public Library to George Flippen. Uh, George Flippen had a hospital in Stromsburg. One of the many things that he accomplished, and uh, he's buried in Stromsburg. And anyway, there was a. There was a special day honoring him and dedicating that section of the library to George Flippen and and uh, Preston Love was one of the people that was there, and uh, he spoke. And you know he he's a he's you know he's a North Omaha uh, activist. He ran for uh, a Senate against Ben Sass as a write-in candidate. Um, he was involved in uh, Jesse Jackson's presidential run uh, attempt in uh, 1984. He helped uh, in the campaign for uh, Chicago Mayor Harold Washington. Uh, he's just a very active individual in, in uh, black rights, and, and uh, he's an Omaha Tech grad. Omaha Tech no longer exists. But I think that the, I think that the kind of personalities um, probably had something to do with that perception of the of the magnificent eight. I think he's the one, probably um, as near as anybody could recollect, he was the one that gave him the nickname the Magnificent Eight, which was a play off of the uh, of the movie uh, 1960, I think, released somewhere in there, uh, the Magnificent Seven. So, uh, you know, I, I think the roster uh, going into the season included uh, maybe 44 players, uh, eight of whom were black. There's a picture, a distinguished picture of them with uh, Bob Devaney, uh, those eight. And I think, again, the profile, the emphasis, because I believe that the, the previous season in six, 1963, 
Um, there might have been more black players on the team uh, even than that. But the perception, as one pointed out, I think it was Jim Brown pointed out, um, the perception at the time was if you were black and you were at the university, you were almost certainly an athlete. And uh, there was also this perception within the state of Nebraska and the population of the state of Nebraska was, uh, um, or uh, the population in Lincoln was 130,000 at that time, but, but not a high black population. And, uh, you know, the, the state basketball tournament was held on campus then uh, at the uh, Coliseum. The finals were all at the Coliseum. That was a big, uh, that was a big deal. You know, the uh, some of the early rounds, I think the Class A played on the main court, and then there was a freshman court uh, that ran uh, at uh, at one end of the Coliseum, and they put a big uh, partition. Really, it wasn't wasn't a solid partition. It was just like a curtain that separated the two and they played a smaller class game over there. So there could be two games going there. And then uh, they played some of the other games at, uh, uh, at one point at Pershing auditorium, but big thing was to play the championship round at the, uh, at the Coliseum. And when people would come in from these smaller towns, um, Jim Brown said that, you know, it was a curiosity to see these black student athletes on campus because they had never seen black, they heard black people in their communities. And at the time, if you watched uh, television, you didn't see very many uh, uh, series shows that uh, included any black uh, characters. And uh, uh, it was just, it was regarded as they were almost like a novelty, you know, that, uh, that people didn't know how to react to them. And again, the perception was, and, and with some accuracy, that uh, most of them were, would have been athletes. Not everyone, though. That's the thing. Um, so, you know, they, they, they were seeing these things, and uh, these eight uh, gentlemen were all uh, successful uh, afterwards. And uh, I just think their presence kind of emphasized where things were at. It's not like anything was solved in the mid-'60s. Um, I remember uh, in the student yearbook, the Cornhusker, I think 1971, uh, I was thumbing through that looking for some stuff about the, you know, that would have covered the 1970 team. Uh, but I found a section in there, and I don't even think it was in the sports part of the yearbook, in which a, a handful of Husker, black Husker players uh, on the team were interviewed uh, about what it was like to be black and be, be on the football team in Nebraska. And uh, one of the answers, Johnny Rogers said, you know, the, the experience was fine, except that, you know, there wasn't much of a social life available um, to the black student athlete. Another one who asked not to be identified, so it was a, wasn't an identified player, um, said he felt like the black players had to play twice as hard as the white players in order to uh, to get on the field. And if you look at the 1970 national championship team, for example, um, most of the black players on that team uh, were either starters or they were so far down the depth chart you couldn't find their name. Um, 
and uh, there were some outstanding players on that 70 and 71 national championship team black um, Johnny Rogers uh, Willie Harper Donnie McGee was on one of those teams Daryl White was on one of those teams John Adkins um, they played prominent roles but uh, you know it, it hadn't been resolved by the 70s I mean and you know if you look at the national championships, in the in the, in the late nineties, under Tom Osmer, obviously, lots of black players contributed. And by that point, Nebraska uh, was playing black quarterbacks. Obviously, um, Tommy Fraser had a significant impact on two of those national championships uh, under Tom Osmer. And uh, Nebraska didn't have a really didn't have a, a regular black quarterback until uh, Turner Gill in the. Uh, in the early eighties. You, you talked to some of them. Uh, you've got, you've got quotes in this piece. I'm going to read a quote now from Willie Pascal. We were trying, we were still trying to come up from being second class citizens. He said, trying to get the other white population to understand that. I think through football, we were able to accomplish some of that end quote. Um, you, you cite there's a there was a, a 276 page city yearbook from 1964 that featured only four pages where photos show people of color. Three of those four images are sports related. Um, and, and you've got Jim Brown quoted as saying, quote, we were objects of fascination to a certain extent. Um, I, I understand that the times that we're that we're working in, but these still caught me um, in your in your talks with these players, these men, what, what was the, what was the mood as they were kind of remembering these times? Was it sort of like, you know, laughing through some of the memories? Was it, were there painful or tense moments? Kind of take me through the, the process of just reminiscing on this stuff with them. Well, it, uh, you know, Willie Pashal was uh, from San Antonio, Texas. Jim Brown was from, there's a, there's a, you know, from Omaha. Preston Love was from Omaha. Um, Harry Wilson was from Steubenville, Ohio. Um, Langston Coleman was from Washington, D.C., one of the earliest walk-ons at Nebraska. Uh, Ted Backer was from Washington, Pennsylvania. Uh, Tony Jeter was from Wharton, West Virginia. Freeman White was from Detroit. I mean, these guys were from all over. Um, and, and I only talked to uh, three of them, I think, in part because of the, the space that I had to write the story, and in part because it was difficult getting in touch with uh, some of some of them. And you know, uh, at that point, Langston Coleman uh, had had passed, and and so forth. But um, so the ones I talked to, and I didn't during our conversations. Um, there wasn't bitterness; it was more of a matter of fact kind of a thing, and it and. You know, it was, it was like, um, I remember Willie saying something to the effect of, you know, after the story came out, uh, he was appreciative that they had had the opportunity to tell the story. Um, it, I'm not sure that the pain that might have been there um, that they would have necessarily shared with me when they, when they told these stories. And maybe that's why I had difficulty getting hold of some of them. Maybe they didn't want to talk to me. I've, I've encountered that in, in some situations. But uh, 
Um, no, I, I thought that the storytelling was a very a direct and, and uh, you know, detailed. And again, we're, we're talking about remembrance of things past, but um, that I just had, I talked to uh, each of them uh, more than once. Uh, and uh, I just, it was, a, for me, it was just an enjoyable uh, opportunity to, uh, to, to allow them to tell a story in whatever way they wanted. I mean, Willie had, uh, his school, his high school had been integrated not all that long, I believe. And, uh, and, and yet, even though it was integrated, there weren't many uh, people of color there at, at his high school. Um, he was a military son of a, his father was in the military. And he, and, you know, after he committed, I think this is in the story, but after he committed to Nebraska, um, he it was in New Mexico State, I think, that came calling. New Mexico, one of them, and uh, had an offense that was more was comparable to what he ran in high school. I mean, he would have preferred to go there, but uh, his parents both said, "No, you've made a commitment to Nebraska. Um, we follow through on our commitments. We don't uh, we don't back out. So you're going there. That's where you committed." Um, so he said that uh, he uh, he followed up on it, and once he got here, he knew he couldn't leave because the same uh, pressure or whatever expectation uh, from his family would have said, no, you're not leaving. You're going to stick it out. You're going to do what you said you were going to do. Um, and and he, he brought up an interesting thing. One of the first, one of his first uh, concerns when he got to campus was whether uh, Nebraska had a, had a chapter of uh, Kappa Alpha Psi, uh, a black fraternity, um, it did, and uh, his, his father had been a member of that fraternity in his college days. So he, uh, you know, that was something that, that gave him a, a sense of being involved with um, the people immediately, helped him in the transition. Uh, even though uh, you can't find, when you take a yearbook, Cornhusker yearbook, and you look at it through those years, um, there is always a section on fraternities and sororities, and each fraternity has its section, and then you see all of its members listed, and in many cases, uh, pictures of little pictures of those members and so forth. Cap uh, Alpha Psi was never acknowledged in any of those. And, you know, Preston Love said that, the, you know, it wasn't acknowledged, and they met in a, in a dorm. Um, they didn't have a fraternity house at that point, but the fraternity existed. I mean, it had been established in 1916 in Nebraska, that chapter. And in 2016, they had a, uh, they had a commemorative uh, event uh, indicating 100 years of uh, existence of the fraternity on campus, that chapter. And there's a large uh, boulder outside the student union that commemorates it now. Um, so, you know, getting back to your point, I, I think that they they probably felt some of those things. But um, even even when he said he'd like to see, would have liked to have seen Peony Park burn down, um, 
Jim Brown doesn't come across and when you talk to him as a violent person. Uh, he didn't say that with anything other than just, you know, I would like to see it gone because it didn't allow us to be involved in that. And, it, you know, I'm rambling here a little bit, but the previous year, and all these all these guys would have been on the uh, previous team, also the 1963 team, um, you know, and, uh, and that team went to the uh, Orange Bowl and played Auburn and defeated Auburn 13 to seven, the Orange Bowl. And after the Orange Bowl, there was a big event that uh, was held at uh, Country Club in Biscayne Bay uh, area. And uh, there was a trophy presentation. And I think the uh, Frank Morrison, the governor of Nebraska was there and George Wallace, the governor of Alabama was there. Uh, Kurt Yowdy, I think was the master of ceremonies or whatever. Um, it was just a big event, big glamorous event. Uh, but the black players on Nebraska's team weren't invited. They had their own. They had their own celebratory party, um, probably at the team hotel. Which the team hotel, the Ivanhoe, uh, which had been newly remodeled, um, when Nebraska got to Miami and the, the Ivanhoe was on Miami beach. Um, uh, the manager said, you know, they had to ask Bob Devaney, do you have any black players? Devaney said, yes, we do. And he said, well, that's fine. Not a problem. The team got there and the manager said to Devaney, um, uh, well, you know, uh, we've got some people staying here that have asked that, uh, if the black players could stay away from the pool and the lobby um, because they would just be uncomfortable with that. And uh, Devaney said, uh, no, uh, we can't ask for that. We'll find another motel, another hotel. And, and so the manager relented and said, well, okay, you know, we're, we're good with that. So these guys were among the, those players on that, 1963 team that had gone through that experience. And again, they had every right to be bitter about things, but they didn't share that bitterness with me when I talked to them. I mean, they were just, uh, they, they were, they seemed to be appreciative of the opportunity to tell their story. And, um, you know, I wish I could have talked to some of the other uh, members of that group, but again, the, the space that I had uh, and the difficulty in tracking some of them down um, or getting them to respond, um, yeah. I, I stayed with the three. One of the one of the quotes that you have in this piece um, that that really stuck out to me was from Jim Brown, where he said, "And if if you were a black football player, you weren't a quarterback, safety, center, or middle linebacker." Um, and and I think I think this stuck out particularly because, you know, it feels like black quarterbacks still have such a higher bar to clear. Like this morning, I was rereading some of I mean, you could call it like hit piece style stuff that was said um, by anonymous scouts or sources or whatever about Kyler Murray before the NFL draft a couple years ago. You know, a guy like Lamar Jackson couldn't throw. Uh, when he was going into the NFL, you know, like dual threat black quarterbacks have to change positions, but a guy like 
Tim Tebow, who I love and will not tolerate Tim Tebow slander, but I think it's, I think it's within reason to say that, that there were issues with him passing the football. He's a first round selection. Um, and, and we kind of see this in the coaching world too. It, it's sort of all over the place really, but we just saw it with David Vanderpool getting passed over in, in Minnesota for the, the Timberwolves head coaching job. Um, you know, when I, when I read that quote, the positions that, that he kind of singled out quarterback, safety center, middle linebacker, um, there's, there's one kind of common thread with those positions, a stereotype that they have to be the smartest guys on the field, that they're the controllers of the game, so to speak. And there are some who still think that black athletes can't succeed there. I'm curious, did you guys talk about that at all? Did you talk about maybe some of the those issues that they ran into in 1964 that, that are still sort of prevalent today? Well, you know, the interesting thing is that in 1963, Nebraska had a black quarterback. He was down in the depth chart, uh, Henry Woods. Uh, he got in he got in a game or two because I remember seeing a, a clip of a, a game in which at the end he got in and uh, threw a touchdown pass. I forget what the game was. Um, but uh, he, he was gone the next year. He transferred, uh, got out of there, and then Nebraska didn't have a black quarterback until um, realistically, uh, Nate Mason was recruited in about 1979, 78, somewhere in there. Um, and uh, he and Ricky Simmons came up from the same high school. And then it was the next year that Turner Gill was recruited. And Turner Gill, uh, I've said this many times, but I think Turner Gill was the uh, was the quarter was the kind of the seminal figure. He was the he was the one that turned everything around at Nebraska as a as a as a quarterback. The perception of, of what a black man could do at quarterback. Um, Turner could, you know, he could have been just a straight drop back passer. Um, he could have run more than he did. He had the ability to run. Um, but Tom Osborne had decided that, you know, hey, um, not having a whole lot of success against Oklahoma, the way to beat the Sooners is to play the way the Sooners play, and that is to run some sort of an option offense. And I'm looking for a quarterback that has some experience that can do that. Turner Gill kind of fit that uh, – fit that mold. And, uh, you know, the thing that uh, I remember, it came down to Nebraska and Oklahoma on which school was going to get Turner Gill. And Oklahoma had tried to tell him, according to what Turner told me back back then, uh, Oklahoma had said, look, if you go to Nebraska, they'll never let you play quarterback. Uh, They'll move you to defensive back. Uh, He believed Osborne. He came to Nebraska. As I said, he set the standard, I think, for option quarterbacks. It was all progression from there. Uh, and you saw it in guys like uh, uh, Steve Taylor. Uh, Jerry Godowski, uh, one year that he ran the option, uh, was a remarkable season that he had. Um, Steve Taylor, uh, as I said, was a, a three-year starter. Uh, saw some action as a, as a true freshman. Uh, he was an important figure in that development. You know, all of this leading up to uh, Tommy Frazier, 
and uh, and what Frazier was able to do with uh, with the option offense. But uh, yeah, it was it, it wasn't an easy thing. I mean, you know, we're talking about the eighties um, before it gets going at Nebraska, the development of that option quarterback, and you know. Uh, Eric Crouch ran the option, won the Heisman uh, Trophy. Uh, Scott Frost was the first uh, Nebraska quarterback to have a thousand yards rushing and a thousand yards passing in the same season. Um, and you know the the guy that followed uh, Eric Crouch, uh, Jamal Lord, often gets dismissed. He he did a great job. He, he was in a difficult position because he was following uh, a Heisman Trophy winner. An Omaha guy, an in-state guy, uh, and you know, what do you have to do? He didn't have the as, as, as much around him as some Nebraska teams. Um, he had a lot on his shoulders. He responded very well. Uh, I, you know, I thought Jamal did exceptionally well two seasons, and is in the discussion when you talk about the you know outstanding quarterbacks Nebraska's had. But again, it wasn't an easy thing. It was a difficult. It was a difficult path to go, um, but you know I always appreciated Tom Osborne's ability to look at things and adjust. And uh, you know I think that was an area in which he he adjusted from where things had been. You know when he took over as the head coach, and he'd been effectively the offensive coordinator before that for Devaney, but Devaney never had gave anybody the title. But after uh, uh, 1968, and you know, back-to-back 64 seasons, they needed to have uh, they needed to have uh, some change, and uh, in the offense, and then so he basically turned it over to Tom, and Tom started working with the spread, and then you know, Tom was a receivers coach, so his his uh, focus was more of a passing-related kind of a thing. And his first two quarterbacks when he was head coach, most prominent ones were David Hum, who was a great passer, and Ben Sparagama, who transferred from California and was a great passer. And um, So he had to make some adjustments. But part of that adjustment was a matter of race and the willingness to play a black man at quarterback. You talked about space with this, and you kind of constrained a little bit with – with what you could report and what you could write just based off of, I mean, every, every journalist has gone through that just space when in talking with these guys, was there a story um, or an anecdote or something that maybe you wanted to include that got left on the cutting room floor? What's, what's, what's something that, that you found interesting in talking with them that didn't get necessarily included in your piece? Well, I think the anecdotal stuff was pretty much as I, as I saw it, I'd have to go back and look at my notes now, but I, you know, Preston Love is a great storyteller. Um, and, uh, you know, his story is, is, uh, again, I grew up in, in Nebraska. Um, I followed, uh, athletics. Uh, I always enjoyed the state basketball tournament, you know, that was a big deal. And, uh, I have a recollection of when he played at Omaha tech and tech made it down to the state tournament and, you know, that kind of thing. So there were aspects of his, you know, what he did in high school and the players with whom he played at Tech and so forth, and just the tradition there and his relationship with Ernie 
Chambers, Senator Ernie Chambers, um, for whom I have had the tremendous respect, you know, as kind of a the, uh, contrary voice in the state legislature for so many years. You know, he kind of represented a, a, a side of things that was underrepresented, obviously. Um, and uh, I even got a, a kind letter from uh, Ernie Chambers when I was at the newspaper commenting on a positive way on on one of the stories that I had written, but um, and so Preston Love talked a, a lot about a lot about his experience growing up in Omaha um, that wasn't covered in that in that story, even though I acknowledged some of it uh, wasn't covered in that in that story. And it, you know, I think uh, that's you know, there's there's a lot to be told there. I know that uh, Dirk Chatelain of the uh, Omaha World Herald did a did a book about uh, uh, that part of Omaha that uh, you know it produced some uh, tremendous athletes and people that fought a lot of difficult times to to get where they where they were. Mm-hmm. I'm trying to think if we talked about uh, Gail Sayers a whole lot. You know, he was kind of from that time too, and he went to Central. At, you know, I think he was a year older than uh, uh, Jim Brown. And uh, I think Jim and I could have talked a little bit more about that than we did. It was interesting because uh, Sayers didn't go to Nebraska. Bill Jennings couldn't get him there. And that was one of the reasons, I think, that at least a, an element of Bill Jennings being dismissed as coach was uh, losing somebody like Dale Sayers to Kansas. So, um you know, Jim Brown said initially he wasn't all that uh, interested in Nebraska either, but um, because of the uh, reputation. But when Devaney came in, that was a whole different kind of a thing. Yeah, I think I think Devaney had a little bit better uh, uh, ability to to deal with the uh, um, black players. Um, he came from Saginaw, Michigan. Um, Bob was kind of a rabble rouser. Uh, and his youth, I guess, and being a boxer, and I don't know. I think he just related a little bit better to to the black players, and you know, he brought in he brought in probably more. I'm trying to think, you know, Jennings had some some black players, and actually, Jennings' recruiting class was the one that uh, helped Devaney get things turned around right away. You know, Devaney when he got here said, "Hey." The, players that we've got here are, are pretty good. You know, what they, uh, they need to be, uh, the coaching needs to change a little bit and the facility needed upgrade. That was a lot of the things. But, you know, Willie Pashal was uh, was here before Devaney got here. Um, he'd been recruited already and uh, his freshman in 1961. So, um, yeah, I don't think there were specific stories that come to mind. I, I'm sure that if I looked through my notes, there were things um, that I would have liked to would, would have liked to have inclu- included, and particularly uh, again, uh, Preston Love is a great storyteller, so um, I'm sure that uh, he could have filled out the story on his own. Yeah, you have him quoted as saying that eight black players was a big number. Uh, yeah. the, the full quote, that was a very large number. It speaks to what was going on in big time college football or college ball um, eight on a team. That was hot stuff. So, so there's, there's a pretty straightforward line from that to 
where the name came from, like why they are referred to as the Magnificent Eight. But I think you said this in the beginning. Do you know, or, or is it like, is it is it pinned down who specifically first referred to the group as the Magnificent Eight, or or where the 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 actual nickname kind of traces back to who the first person was that said it? Was it Preston Love? Well, that seemed to be the consensus that it was Preston that, that came up with that idea, which again fits with the fits with what I my what I took away from from my discussions and what I've taken away from the times that we've talked or traded emails or whatever. Um, I I think that there's some certainty there, but you know it's one of those things again. I think that you don't remember exactly. You know, um, I it. As I said, I think the story started with Preston, and it may have started also with the photograph, uh, seeing that picture with those eight, with those eight guys and, and Bob Devaney, um, and being curious about that. Now I know, you know, I've, I've looked through the '63 uh, media guide, and I uh, looked through the, uh, the Cotton Bowl program, and uh, the, there were a couple more. There were more than eight black. Uh, players on the team in 63. Um, but I don't know that, you know, the Magnificent Eight wasn't just a name. Those guys were all guys that had, you know, contrib- made significant contributions. I mean, they, they were prominent guys. They weren't like backup guys or down the, down the, uh, depth chart. And again, it was, it's difficult, you know, if, if you weren't a starter, you weren't capable of being the guy on the field. Uh, it was difficult for you to be on the team. Um, and I think that, I really think that that impacted the numbers to some extent, you know, it's just like, well, you better be, a, you better be ready to start with limitations. As you pointed out with that quote about, you know, certain decisions, you wouldn't, you weren't going to play that. And I, I know that, uh, you know, another thing that, that Preston had told me or that Preston said was that, uh, you know, if you were a halfback, for example, uh, like Harry Wilson, uh, uh, Willie Pashaw played both offense and defense, but he, I think he kind of settled primarily as a defensive back. But it, a lot of times if you were a, a black running back, and it made a difference whether you're the right halfback or the left halfback in in, in Devaney's system. Um, typically, what would happen is all of the blacks would be that black halfbacks would be at the same on the same side. You know, they'd be competing with each other for that same position, and uh, that made it difficult uh, for them as well. So, um, you know, there were a lot of things that were seemed to be built into into the system, and you know. Part of that story for me, the context of part of that story is the entire context of the uh, black student athlete in Nebraska. Um, going back, uh, you know, through the uh, um, you know, Bill Glassford era, you know, when there was, a, a, you know, uh, that's when the first, well, from 1913, when Clinton Ross uh, played for Jumbo Steam team in 1913 until uh, 1954, um, Nebraska didn't have uh, a black football letterman. There was one, uh, as near as I can tell, there was one black football player uh, 
after Clinton Ross, but before Charles Bryant in nineteen letter nineteen fifty four. Um, Tom Carradine, who got on the field, uh, who started a couple of games in 1951 after transferring from Loyola of Los Angeles, um, missed the third game because he had bruised ribs. But he was dismissed from the team uh, by Bill Glassford after that for, for skipping class. And it turned out that that's why he had been dismissed from Loyola of Los Angeles. But there's a lot of controversy about that, about Tom Carradine. That's that's one of the stories I'd like to do at some point, if I can find enough information about it. I mean, it's difficult sometimes, but think about that. And there was an unwritten rule at the university starting in about 1917 that blacks couldn't participate in extracurricular activities. And that wasn't lifted until, well, probably the, the late 40s or uh um, and again, Charles Bryant in 1954, uh, Leonard and Charles was from uh, Omaha South. And I remember, he, you know, I interviewed him on a couple of occasions before he passed. I was very fortunate. And um, he shared a lot with me. And one of the things he said was people in South Omaha told him, don't go to Nebraska. You'll never get an opportunity there. And he was stubborn enough to go. And he ended up lettering in football. Uh, a couple times and wrestling. And at the same time he was there, then uh, uh, John McWilliams came from Sydney, Nebraska and lettered uh, for three years in football, one year in track and field. Um, and the interesting thing there was that uh, uh, John uh, McWilliams, um, his freshman year, uh, he didn't have a scholarship. The scholarship uh, system was much different, you know, in the early 50s. Um, the people of Sydney, Nebraska, paid for his way when he was freshman year. So he could come down to Nebraska and play football. Um, he was always appreciative of that. Then there was another uh, a black football player on the, on those teams, Sylvester Harris, who didn't, never earned a letter. He was from Kansas City. But, and, and so that's Glassford, you know, that's, that's Bill Glassford's era. Um, and that, there just weren't that many um, black student athletes at the University of Nebraska um, for that long stretch of time. And, and so we're, we're on 64. We're still not that far away, and not a whole lot has changed. And that was, again, that's what sort of made the Magnificent Eight so interesting and their willingness to uh, discuss it and talk about it. Um, because you have to take it in context and you still haven't got things all that resolved. I mean, it's better than, than it was um, during that uh, shutdown when the university, no, I don't think it was a written rule. I think it was just a, just uh, taken for granted, but it, you know, blacks were prohibited from being involved in uh, extracurricular, extracurricular activities, sports uh, primarily. And, and, uh, uh, what a, you know, what a difficult thing. And then even then, there were problems within the conference when, when uh, Nebraska did return, uh, did allow that to happen. There, there was still some, oh, I don't want to say, there was still some, there were still problems. You know, when Nebraska played in Auburn in that uh, 
in that Orange Bowl, the 64 Orange Bowl after the 63 season. That's the first time Auburn had ever played a game against a team with black players. Um, 1964, you're talking about. And, you know, it just boggles the mind. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would encourage everybody to go read Mike's story. Uh, it's on it's on hailvarsity.com. I will uh, I'll link to it in the description uh, for this podcast that gets posted to our site. Uh, but obviously, you guys won't see that um, if you are getting this podcast from like iTunes or Spotify or Google Play or whatever. Um, it's 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 simply called the Magnificent Eight on hailvarsity.com. I would encourage everybody to go read it. Mike's a wonderful storyteller. Mike, it's always a joy to just sit and listen to you. Um, share stories and talk about this program's history. So thank you uh, for doing that. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. I'll let you get back to your day. Hey, thanks to you, Derek and and be safe, everybody. Uh, That's going to do it for the podcast this week. Um, I would also encourage all of you guys, the, the various Nebraska Twitter accounts. So for the different sports teams um, have been sharing um, this week, black Husker history videos um, highlighting, past, um, we'll call them pioneers, uh, in, in their various sports, um, people of color. And, and they're doing a really cool thing where it's narrated by, um, current players on the, on the team talking about sort of the, uh, the, the story, the legacy, the, the impact of, um, of black former Huskers, um, and their informative videos. Um, and they're well worth kind of giving them a watch. So there's, there's been one on bowling. There's been one on baseball. There's been one on, on softball. Um, and I would assume that there are more coming. The Nebraska football account also tweeted a video. Um, it's five minutes long. I would encourage everyone to go watch that talking about the magnificent eight. Um, so, you know, one thing I, I always talk with people about like it, black history month is in February, but you know, it, it's all year long. Um, the, you know, there's never, never a bad time to share stories of, of, trailblazers um so we'll be back next week with another podcast in the meantime keep reading hillvarsity.com go go watch those videos that i said go read mike's story read all of mike's stories he's great and uh we will be back next week thanks guys a hood at media production